Hello everyone, welcome back to the Knowledge Group podcast where we're taking a forward look at what you can expect at upcoming events. This week we're going to be turning our attention to the upcoming event Appellate Litigation, what to watch out for in 2018 and beyond, where we're going live November 15th between 3pm and 4.30pm Eastern Standard Time. And today we're going to be joined by our panel formed of Mark James Ayers, a partner at Bradley Arendt. We're going to be also joined by Peter Pierce, a shareholder with Richards, Watson and Gershon, and John North, a partner at Greenbaum, Rowe, Smith and Davis, LLP. All the information for our panel, along with the agenda and details of how to take part in this event, will be found in the description box down below. It'll also be accompanied with the discount code PODCAST25, which will get you 25% off your first webcast registration. Podcast 25 is the code you need. All the information's in the description box. Let's turn things over to our speakers now. My name is Mark Ayers. I'm with the Bradley Firm. I work out of our Birmingham, Alabama office in our appellate litigation group. And virtually 100% of my practice is in appellate litigation and complex litigation. Uh, and what I plan to speak on is uh, really talking about standards of review with a with a with a focus on administrative law and some of the developments there and you know one of them it's it's really one of the most crucial aspects of appellate practice is the understanding and, and properly applying uh, of standards of review whatever the governing standard of review is and it it seems uh, a fairly simple matter the standards of review it's something uh, that that is that is somewhat basic but it's frequently the source of missed opportunities on appeal and probably because it is such a such a basic you can think of it as a as a law school type uh, type point and it can become uh the 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 subject of routine and so a lot of times uh you, you just kind of throw the standard of review into a case, but then don't properly apply it. One thinks of an example for, uh, that I've seen a lot in, in if you are trying to get a summary judgment reversed. I've seen a lot of briefs where uh, someone will cite the summary judgment standard, but then try to argue the case on the merits uh, instead of just arguing, wait a minute, I don't have to win here. Uh, what I'm trying to do is to demonstrate that there's at least sufficient evidence to get to a jury trial. And so they set the bar higher than they need to, and, and mistakes like that are are fairly common. Uh, one area of the law where this becomes of particular uh, interest and sometimes particular problems is in the area of administrative law, uh, appealing or defending on appeal of the decision of an administrative agency on either the state or the federal uh, side. Uh, those appeals, and there are many uh, every day across the country, have particular unique standards, often governed by statute, sometimes governed by uh, case law, and practitioners that need to be aware uh, of those, and I uh, plan to give just a, a, a bit of a, a short primer on, on what people should be looking for when they, when they have one of these appeals, especially with an eye towards a standard overview. And then uh, of particular relevance is the notion of deference, uh, which is deference to agency interpretations of the law, how to deal with that. And there are different doctrines that have 
come up primarily through the federal system, primarily through the United States Supreme Court, ruling on you know, what, what is a court's proper role when it is in one of these administrative appeals and it's faced with an agency determination of some governing law or some governing regulation. And those have been uh, fairly well developed, but of, of particular interest have been challenged somewhat in, in recent years. And there are certain developments uh, in the federal system and before the United States Supreme Court, and in, in, including even some cases now before the, the high court, challenging some of these doctrines of deference. And so it's something that anyone that practices in the area of administrative law, and even, even if it's purely in state administrative law, oftentimes state courts will follow the federal courts with regard to their deference decisions. And so uh, that's, a, that's a particularly interesting area of law that I plan to discuss, and some of these new developments, and how that all ties in with uh, in increasing your chances of victory on appeal with regard to the use and operation of the standards of review. Uh, I'm Peter Pierce. I am a, a partner in the law firm of Richards, Watson, and Gershon in its San Francisco office, and I practice primarily appellate law on behalf of private and public agency clients. One of the um, areas of expertise that I've developed over the years is representing public, agency and public agencies in uh, Second Amendment cases. And with the with the increase in, um, I guess, mass shootings across the United States, we hear more calls for firearms regulations um, at the national and at the state level. Um, but against that backdrop, we have a robust Second Amendment. As the Supreme Court announced in Heller, the Second Amendment protects a pre-existing right to possess a weapon for self-defense, and that is a fundamental right. That's a constitutional right. So uh, any calls for firearms regulation, of course, have to be weighed against the Second Amendment um, right as articulated in Heller. And that right applies as a constraint not only on the federal government, but also upon uh, states and local governments under the McDonald decision. But since McDonald was decided in 2010, the Supreme Court has not accepted any cases for review that really explore the contours of the Second Amendment and where its protections apply. Uh, one primary question that is vexing to lower federal courts is whether or not the right applies outside of the home. Three circuit courts, the Seventh Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, and the D.C. Circuit have held that it does. Three other circuits, the Second, Third, and Fourth, have said it is unclear and have declined to extend the right outside of the home until the Supreme Court um, decides that issue. As I mentioned, the Supreme Court has declined to decide that issue thus far. But I think with Justice Kavanaugh's uh, appointment to the Supreme Court, I think the court is now poised um, to step into the fray and to decide whether or not the Second Amendment um, extends outside of the home. And there is a Ninth Circuit case involving a statute uh, enacted by the, the state of Hawaii uh, that will probably uh, go en banc in the Ninth Circuit here in the next two months. But I think that case is probably going to be teed up um, for Supreme Court review on the question of whether the Second Amendment applies outside of the home. Uh, another issue with which the lower federal courts are struggling is the level of scrutiny um, to use in evaluating a regulation that implicates uh, the fundamental right protected by the Second Amendment to possess a weapon for self-defense. We know in the wake of Heller that rational basis review is inappropriate 
But other than articulating that, uh, the Heller majority really left open what level of scrutiny uh, would apply depending upon uh, the regulation. The lower circuit courts have agreed that <clears throat> there's really sort of a two-step approach, and uh, courts ask whether the challenge law burdens conduct protected by the Second Amendment, and then if it does, then courts will apply an appropriate level of scrutiny. Where the uncertainty comes in, however, is in deciding what level of scrutiny to apply, courts will look at how close the regulation that's being challenged comes to the core of the Second Amendment right. And of course, that's going to be a judgment call depending on the particular regulation. And courts will also look to uh, the severity of the law's burden on that right. And, and, and there's also a judgment call there. And so I think the lower federal courts are looking to the Supreme Court to sort of give shape and contour to the appropriate test to use when you have a regulation that burdens um, the core right. And again, is in the area of the location of where the right extends, I think the Supreme Court here in the next two or three terms is probably going to take a case that will shed more light on what sort of scrutiny regulations that implicate the Second Amendment should be subjected to. Uh, yes, thank you. I'm uh, John North. I'm a partner at Greenbaum, Rose, Smith & Davis in Woodbridge, New Jersey. Uh, my practice is primarily at the trial level. I'm uh, primarily a trial uh, lawyer, but many of the cases I have wind up one way or the other on appeal, and a lot of them involve uh, unique um, uh, legal issues that do find their way into the appellate courts where I also practice. Uh, I've uh, chosen to uh, uh, discuss uh, appellate issues that are likely to arise under Title IX of the Educational Amendments of 1972 uh, after the uh, Me Too movement. Uh, <clears throat> claims against colleges and universities for student-on-student -student sexual assault uh, or harassment uh, have been brought under Title IX, and and even before the Me Too movement, um, the there's been a number of of cases that have uh, pushed up against the limits of the private uh, cause of action under Title IX. But I believe with uh, an increasing uh, awareness of the problem of. Uh, sexual misconduct on campus, uh, and the, uh, the Me Too movement, I think, has added more impetus uh, to this. Um, since 1999, uh, the uh, Supreme Court in, in the Davis against Monroe County Board of Education case recognized a private right of action under Title IX for student-on-student uh, sexual uh, assault or misconduct. Now, Title IX is a uh, is a law against discrimination. It is not a law that establishes a standard of care or uh, for the protection of students. So, uh, although the courts have recognized the cause of action, they have fairly narrowly circumscribed it. Uh, in order to maintain a claim against a college or university, uh, the plaintiff must show that there was actual knowledge of sexual harassment. Uh, the sexual harassment was of such a 
severe or uh, pervasive uh, nature that uh, it deprived the plaintiff of equal educational opportunities. Uh, and then in addition to showing um, actual knowledge of uh, sexual harassment of that severity, uh, the plaintiff must also show that the institution, the educational institution, uh, was deliberately indifferent uh, to the situation. And the, uh, again, the deliberate indifference standard is not a standard of conduct. It's not a negligence standard. It is instead a way of demonstrating that the uh, college or university has discriminated, has knowingly violated uh, Title IX, and has uh, uh, intentionally uh, discriminated on the basis of uh, gender in that sense. Now, uh, the cases that uh, uh, I've seen, and uh, I do litigate civil rights and other rights cases uh, in the defense of uh, public entities, uh, the cases that I've seen have, have sought to stretch the limits of that cause of action, mostly with regard to what amounts to absolute indifference. Uh, I think, as we all know, uh, they scale from deliberate indifference uh, to uh, willful ignorance to uh, recklessness uh, to negligence is somewhat of a slippery slope. And I believe that um, uh, in the cases that I've seen, plaintiffs uh, may be seeking to establish that the failure to undertake some type of affirmative action uh, can be uh, uh, characterized as deliberate indifference. So I think in those two areas, both in, in, in what it, it, it takes to prove deliberate indifference and what it takes to prove actual knowledge, uh, there are cases that are uh, seeking to uh, stretch the limits of the existing cause of action, uh, and I, I'm, those cases will find their way um, uh, to the appellate level. There is also a, um, a tension that's developing in the law under Title IX, and that is, uh, on the one hand, while the uh, victims of sexual harassment uh, have difficulty in proving their uh, claims uh, and improving sexual harassment. The perpetrators uh, have raised issues in a number of cases concerning their due process rights. Uh, under a uh, Dear Colleagues letter that was issued by the Obama administration, uh, the standard for imposing uh, discipline uh, and finding uh, allegations of sexual harassment to be founded or substantiated uh, was a preponderance of the evidence standard. Uh, in a recent case in federal court in New Mexico, uh, the U.S. District Court found that that uh, level of burden of proof, that level of proof uh, did not satisfy due process requirements when the alleged perpetrator faced expulsion from the university, damage to the reputation, uh, and, uh, and, and may have lasting effects through his or her life. That case also found that procedurally, 
because of the seriousness of the allegations uh, and the consequences that were faced by the alleged perpetrator, there had to be uh, procedural safeguards such as um, uh, the right of cross-examination, the right of confrontation, uh, and and more formal uh, procedures that uh, we associate with trials. So on the one hand, uh, in, in these cases, there's a difficulty in substantiating the allegations uh, because of the context in which they arise. These are not of course, forcible rape cases where uh, one stranger physically assaults uh, another, they all, or all the cases I've been involved in, arise out of a social setting among college kids. And, and so there's usually some type of social interaction that has taken place and often a relationship between the victim and the alleged perpetrator uh, that makes proving these cases of, uh, against the perpetrator uh, very difficult. On the other hand, um, uh, because of the consequences, uh, at least one district court and others have recognized uh, the need for due process and procedural safeguards, uh, including uh, an appropriate level of burden of proof. So, uh, when there's this type of tension in the law and uh, I think an increased uh, frequency uh, of these cases and an increased concern about what's taking place on college campuses, I think it inevitably uh, will lead to um, uh, uh, legal issues that need to be resolved and will be resolved on appeal. The last uh, issue is somewhat related to that. Um, which I'm going to discuss it also concerns Title IX and concerns what type of an educational institution or program uh, may be a defendant under Title IX. There's a, a, a recent case in the Third Circuit that uh, determined that a radiology residency program uh, in a university hospital, which is, was, would be considered uh, an educational program under Title IX. Uh, that has not been the traditional approach. Of course, we do not uh, uh, generally associate uh, uh, residency programs with uh, educational institutions that may be, um, have liability and need to comply with Title IX. So this is a recent Third Circuit case uh, that expands uh, not only the well, it doesn't expand the basis of liability of these other ones, but it does expand the scope uh, of, of potential defendants uh, in this type of case. In the case I'm referring to, uh, the plaintiff was a resident uh, and brought a claim uh, alleging sexual harassment on the part of the supervisor, and we're likely to see uh, increased um, uh, appellate litigation in the federal courts on those issues. Thanks everyone for listening to this week's episode of the Knowledge Group podcast where this event's going live November the 5th between 3pm and 4.30pm Eastern Standard Time. Appellate litigation, what to watch out for in 2018 and beyond is the title. All the information's in the description box along with the code PODCAST25 to get 25% off your first webcast registration. All the information you need once again is in the description box. We look forward to seeing you at this event. Take care. Bye now.